This presentation of In Their Own Words is brought to you by The Honor Project and is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. On April 2nd, 1972, Lieutenant Colonel Gene Hamilton's EB-66 aircraft was sent aloft on a mission to jam the radar of the North Vietnamese surface-to-air missile installations. Ironically, Hamilton's plane was hit by one of the deadly SAMs. Hamilton ejected and parachuted safely to the ground. But a quick rescue attempt was foiled when searchers discovered that he had landed right in the middle of an enemy division. For six desperate days, the 53-year-old Air Force officer put his faith in the hands of the facts orbiting overhead. Uh, the mission that uh, I went on that day was uh, a follow-on mission. Um, there was a big build-up up along the uh, um, Ho Chi Minh Trail that they wanted to take care of right now, so we got a hurry-up call. And it was late in the afternoon, and uh, the reason I was on the mission is because all of the rest of our crews were either flying or on R&R or crew rest. And so I had to get a crew together, and I it come to pass that, hell, I was the only navigator left. Uh, the rest of the crew actually was our squadron, most of our squadron staff. The... Uh, the head uh, EWO and the uh, admin officer. But it was a follow-on mission that was a uh, one of these, uh, we need you right now. And we are going up to uh, support the B-52s on a raid up into the Magia Pass. And in layman's terms, what in, uh, in sort of that, you had a cell of B-52s, what was your, what was your job? How did you support those B-52s? Well, we're, we're strictly an electronics airplane. That's all we had. We had no armament on board whatsoever. And our, uh, our job was to go in there with the B-52s, and as soon as we crossed the Mekong River, turn on all of our equipment, which was supposed to jab everything on the ground. I mean, wipe out everything, which it did normally. And uh, that's what we were doing there, just protecting the B-52s uh, electronically. In theory, your, uh, your, your um, electronics were supposed to jam the missiles. How did it come that, uh, that you found yourself being, uh, facing repeated salvos of SAMs? Um, well, we, uh, in our airplane, now, our airplane was not very big. It's, uh, it only weighed about 80,000 pounds fully loaded, <clears throat> quite maneuverable. We could do anything. We could get away from the SAM. And one of our missions was to go up there, or the mission was to protect the B-52s, but was also to make sure that the Vietnamese knew we were there so they would shoot at us because we could get rid of it or get away from it. But this day, uh, this day that I was shot down, the guys pulled a sneaky on us. Uh, our equipment that we had on board told us everything that that missile was doing. And he's sitting, sitting there on the ground, they turn it on, and we had a, a about a three-inch, two-inch scope, three-inch scope right in, right in front of us. 
that would come on. As soon as they'd turn it on, it would, we'd get an uh, amber light. It would say low power. And it would stay amber until it, the guidance speed got up to uh, uh, operating speed. The light would go green and it would stay there until they punched the button. As soon as they punched the button, we'd get a flashing red light that says launch, 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 launch. Um, well, <clears throat> in my 63 missions, we've probably dodged, I would say, probably 85 or 90 missiles. No problem. Because as soon as we got the flashing red light, we'd start to count 1,001, 2, 3, 4, 5, simply because we knew exactly how long it took that missile from ground zero to 31,000 feet, which is 10 seconds. And as soon as we hit 1,005, we'd go into our, uh, our uh, um, SAM, what we call our SAM brake, which is just taking the airplane, tilting it over, and straight down. The missile uh, couldn't pull as many G's as we could. The guidance system would tumble, and it, well, this day, we didn't get an amber light. We didn't get a green light. The first thing we got was uh, the flashing red light. Well, what they had done, these sneaky little devils had put a, a new computer on the missile that, or on the missile that we didn't know about. And uh, they fired it uh, just optically, got it halfway up there, hit a switch, up, up uh, graded the guidance system. And so as soon as we got the red light, we started to count 1,005, and as soon as we hit five, the thing come right up our tailpipe because it was halfway up there before we ever knew it. And that's... Uh, that's the reason I got shot down. Actually, the only thing that I can remember is it was a hell of a noise, and I looked out the window, and it was a heck of a fire. And other than that, it was it was so quick. Um, um, that's that that's just about the size of it. Because the next thing I knew, it I was uh, four, five, six hundred feet above the airplane, hanging out in the air with. Uh, well, <laughs> I didn't hang there very long because I'm a coward, and I. Uh, I opened my parachute uh, probably at 28, 29,000 feet, which I wasn't supposed to do, but I'm, I'm a coward. I w wanted to see if it would work. How narrow an escape was that ejection? I mean, how quickly or how quickly thereafter did uh, things go south for the... Um, from the time it hit to the time I was out is just the blink of an eye. I mean, it happens so fast that you don't realize what's going on. I'm, I'm serious. Uh, I reached down and... and pulled both of my levers and Jesus the next thing I knew I was uh, up there in the air all by myself 500 600 feet above the airplane and what happened to the uh, to the to the plane well the first the first missile hit it and it uh, it blew the uh, left wing off and uh, <coughs> I thought the rest of the crew would get out but uh, within another two or three seconds, they'd, they'd fired two missiles at us that day. And right after I got out, the second missile hit the airplane, and that, that was all. That's Katie bar the door. Um, the aircraft commander, Wayne uh, Boldy, he was alive when I went out of the airplane. Because he, he gave me the signal to go, and, and as I was going out, he waved at me. And I was thinking, well, you'll be right beside me. But uh, second missile hit it, and that, like I say, that's that was all. That's all she wrote. See, this was the second of, of, of April, which was the second day of the big push. 
and nobody, none of our intelligence, and not even us, and we're sitting there and we can see what's going on on the ground, but uh, we didn't realize that they had gone that far south that quick. We didn't know that there were, well, the intelligence people after, uh, in my debriefing, they told me that uh, there were 30,000 enemy troops within a three-mile radius of me. Well, we didn't know that, so to answer your question, no, I didn't. I thought uh, um, because it was uh, just about dark when I hit the ground, and I figured, well, I'll be there overnight. They'll pick me up in the morning, which is what they were planning on, too, <coughs> until they came in the next morning and found out uh, how hot the area was. So but no, I, I thought I'd I thought I'd be out of there the next morning. All I saw was a lot of people, and there was a lot of shooting going on. I don't know who was shooting at shoot, uh, shooting at each other, but uh, I didn't see very much because, again, the weather over there is very very peculiar. And at about three o'clock, four, but between three and four o'clock in the afternoon, there's a fog bank that comes in off of the Tonkin Bay and covers the whole damn country. Well, that fog bank is only about 60 feet from the ground. So I only had 60 feet from the time I broke out until I hit the ground. So I, I really can't, I, uh, I didn't see too much other than a lot of people. But you had a real sense that there were, it was probably not what you were expecting to drop into. Oh, absolutely not. I wasn't expecting to drop into a rice paddy either, but I did. <laughs> to put it bluntly, I was terrified. And I thought, well, um, forget it with that many people around, I thought uh, there's just no way I'm going to get out of here. But, again, we're going to talk about our forward air controllers that are our, our, uh, um, Sandys. They, they real, realized the situation and they're right in there and they're, they're helping me. And they're keeping people away from me, if you know what I mean. And at the time that I was shot down, a lieutenant colonel was worth about 800 uh, American dollars to the guy that picked you up, which is more money than they'll make in their, probably their whole lifetime. And they don't care whether you're dead or alive. And being that I was in Vietnamese country, I could see myself if, if they, uh, uh, they caught me. I wasn't going to be around very long. How does that feel to have an $800 bounty or, I should say, a, a princely sum relative? Well, I, I didn't think that was enough money, but <laughs> uh, it kind of scares you. It scares you. In fact, I was, I was terrified. It really was. Uh, until the next morning when I, uh, uh, next morning when the forward air controller came in and told me what was, what's happening and what they were going to do. And I thought, well, okay, buddy, I'm, I'm in good shape. I'm going to get out of here. Tell me about some of your early dealings with the facts while you were in hiding. And what were the types of things you had? The uh, the the bilks and the the cubbies and the nails sort of running an umbrella over you. What types of things? What type of communications were they having with you at the at the outset? Well, they they kept me informed of everything that was going on that they could see. Everything that was going on around me, where the troops were, where the tanks were. Um, and uh, always their their uh, their advice was okay. You've got a good hiding place. Stay there. Don't move. And they and I thought, well, boy, uh, this is kind of stupid. And I asked him. I said, well, why? And he says, well, we know exactly where you are. 
If you move a hundred yards, he says, we got to look for you again. Stay there and we'll be in and pick you up. So I did. I stayed in the same spot for six days. The main thing was that they just sat there and they're watching everything that's going on around me. And if people get close, they'll call in the Sandys to push them back. They'd bring in the F-4s with this, uh, uh, what we call gravel, which is these little anti-personnel mines. They'd come in and they ring me with those. Um, that, well, that forward air controller, he's, uh, well, he's almost God. Believe me. And I had, a, I had a forward air controller orbiting above me 24 hours a day for 11, about 11, one, one night they weren't over me. But all, the, all, all but that one night, there was a forward air controller over there watching over me all the time. Using a small handheld survival radio, Hamilton guided the friendly aviators to a possible rescue. Well, they, uh, uh, in fact, this, oh, it was the second or third day I was down, and they were coming in supporting me, and, and they were getting ready for the chopper to come in, and they were trying to clean the area out of, of ground fire, so they would make a pass over me and ask me, you hear gunfire? And I said, Roger, and where is it? And what is it? And I says, well, it's about probably two or 300 yards right south of me, and it sounds to me like a 27, 30, 37 millimeter. And he says, okay, we'll take care of that. And uh, he says, we'll run a daisy chain. Well, that's just one right after the other, you know. And uh, the first guy came in, and he is, believe it or not, he is so low, and he's got the mini gun, and he gets about he gets about right over the top of me, and he pulls the trigger on this thing, and and he's so close and so low that the shells out of that mini gun are dropping on me and burning me through my flight suit. So you know he wasn't very high, but anyway, <coughs> he pulls up and he, he called me back. And he's bat. He's still gun, I said, still ground fire, and I says, Roger, you missed him. He says, well, okay. Uh, and I says, you missed him, but not very far. He says, number two, when you come in, I says, move about 50 yards to the right of where, where number one was and let it go. Well, he did, and uh, believe it or not, that's the last we heard, ever heard from that gun. And uh, then another time, uh, I guess it was the third or fourth night, I heard all this noise up north of me. Well, I got out of my uh, my hiding place, my hole, and there was a little knoll. I got up on top of this knoll, and I could look right down on the uh, intersection of uh, the Ho Chi Minh Trail and Route Route 9. And I called the Fort Ware controller, and I asked him, I says, uh, and I forget what, uh, what uh, this guy's call sign was. It doesn't make any difference, one of the air controllers. I says, can you see this? And he says, no, I can't see because of the of the uh, cloud coverage. And I said, well, right at the intersection, there's a big, everybody's meeting. I says, there's tanks, trucks, men. I said, they sit there and they talk. And I said, some of them go east and some of them go west. He says, okay, just hang on. We'll take care of that. So he calls in the F-4s. Um, and there was a few people and a few tanks and a few trucks that didn't go south that night. 
And the next night, the same thing happened. So I was, I was, I was a little help while I was on the ground. Uh, I tried to be anyway. They started flying a, a chopper missions in to pick me up the first day that I was down. The only thing, they, they've come so far and the ground fire was so great that they had to turn back. Well, believe it or not, they I think uh, the intelligence guy told me that they, uh, the choppers actually started 24 missions, sorties, to get in there and get me. And the same thing happened. They come so far. And, uh, and <clears throat> then the day that they did come in, I think it was the sixth or seventh day when Jolly 6-7 was shot down, uh, they thought they had everything cleared out. Only one problem. At night, there's a little village over probably half a mile east of me. And uh, um, during the dark, they had brought all this uh, heavy artillery in there. And this is what shot my uh, uh, Jolly Green down. Because uh, they were within, I would say, two minutes of picking me up when they got shot down. Well, I thought it was all over, really. I really did. I didn't think there was any chance in the world of me getting, that, getting out after that because uh, later in the evening, uh, they called me and says, Hey, look, we're backing off. we got to change plans. No more airplanes. And I, th I thought it was all over, really, until they come up with the plan that they came up with to walk me to the river and pick me up down there. It wasn't until one night without friendly communication that Hamilton realized just how dependent he was on the forward air controllers. Well, uh, it bothered me. It bothered me simply because, uh, uh, I don't know what time it was. It was right at dark or after dark, but uh, he, called me on, uh, he called me on the radio and he says, uh, tonight you'll have no babysitter. And I thought, well, they've given up. You know, I, that, I, that was my first impression that uh, they figured the old man is, uh, he's had it. We can't spend any more airplanes. And so they're going to let him die. And, then, and it was that simple. But that wasn't the reason that they pulled him off, that I found out about two or three o'clock the next morning, or that morning. That was the night they brought the B-52s in and ringed me with the, uh, 500-pound bombs, which scared the out of me. But I, they didn't tell me they were going to do that. And when it happened, I thought, oh, my God, they've completely forgotten me. Now, in fact, uh, I even thought at one time, hell, they're trying to kill me. I'm not too sure that they weren't, but uh, <laughs> I shouldn't say that because uh, after all the effort they put through, they were going to come in there and kill me, but... Uh, it was strictly a diversion, B-52 diversion, that the only time it's ever been used, but it worked, I guess, because here I am. With all hopes of a rescue fading, a unique plan was devised to get Hamilton to safety. Well, really, that, that's the best part of the whole doggone story. We played a golf game. They came up and, and devised a golf game that would get me from, from where I was to the river, down the river, to a... a, a cement blockhouse that the French built way back. But they got, uh, there was three real good friends of mine got together. Uh, one of them was in Honolulu, one of them was in the Pentagon, and one of them was right there in, in, in uh, um, Thailand with me. But they got together on a phone and says, on a, 
uh, conference and says, hey, let's come up with a plan to get the old man out of there. Well, it just so happens that all three of these guys are good golfing buddies of mine. So they sent the F-4s in, or they got pictures of, uh, from the F-4s, and they made a mosaic that was probably three by two and a half, three by three, laid it out, <coughs> and the guy there in, in uh, um, Thailand, naturally he got, but some way they faxed a copy of this to the one in, in um, Honolulu and the one, and they sat down, all of them with the picture, and they said, okay, now that we gotta get him from here to here. So they got out, I don't know what they used, but they were taken, and they figured out a course that would take me from where I was to a hiding place, to a hiding place, to another hiding place to get me to the river. And the first, the first hole that they come up with was uh, number one right out here at Tucson National. Well, I'm a member of Tucson National, and, and I know that golf course like I know the palm of my hand. In fact, um, I'm a golf nut, always have been. And I can go out and play a golf course once. And you ask me a year later about hole number five, and I'll tell you about it, how long it is, where, where the traps are, and, and what direction it goes. Well, they knew that. So they come up with, okay, you're playing number one at Tucson National. Tucson National number one is 408 yards long, and it goes southeast. And it took me a little time to figure out what the hell they were talking about, but it finally dawned on me, and I says, okay, I think I got it. So I stepped off what I thought was 408 yards, called my forward air controller, and I said, I've finished number one. And, and uh, his first question was, uh, are you out in the open? I says, negative. You got a good hiding place? Roger. Okay, now we'll play number two at uh, uh, Shaw Air Force Base. It's about a 400-yard hole, and it goes straight east. Well, the river is straight east of where I am. So I walk off, walk off straight east, call him in the open, negative. Got a good hiding place? Roger. He says, you just broke the code. And that's what they did. They come out, and they figured out where... And... Uh, so about four o'clock in the morning, uh, I called him up and I said, I just finished number nine. <laughs> and sure enough, I looked down and, and there, there's, the, there's the lake. But during this period, I don't know whether you want to know about this or not, but it's real funny. I think it was about hole number four. Um, um, I kind of got, got myself lost on, uh, on the hole before that. I got into it, but Banana Grove and kind of got mixed up. It took me a little while to get out of there. Finally got out. <clears throat> Called him and told him I'd finished, or finished that hole, and he said, okay, we're... And I'm looking up, and, and he's taking me right through the middle of this building, building where the, uh, or this village, where the uh, uh, gun shot my chopper down. And I called him, and I said, hey, I don't like this. I said, why can't we, why can't we go around this? He's haven't got time. You've got to go. And I said, I don't like it. And he said, don't worry about it. He says, uh, remember we told you we'd sterilize the area? And I says, Roger. He says, you can go through it. I got about halfway through it. And uh, now this day, this was, I think, the seventh day, something like the seventh, yeah, probably seventh day. I'm getting pretty hungry. And uh, I go through and, and there's 
well, there's a big mess in that village. But I'm coming around the corner of this one building and, and I run into a little chicken about that high. And I thought, oh boy, I'm gonna have something to eat. And I took out, took out after that damn chicken. I never did catch him. But for some reason, I, I just had that, that, had that feeling. I thought, boy, there's something wrong. I glanced back over my shoulder and I found out that while I was chasing the chicken, I got something back there chasing me. And we had a little confrontation, I guess four, five, six seconds. I left, didn't get the chicken. I left, he didn't. Then everything after just till it was, then it was a milk run from there down to the river. I got down to the river and I was got a little hiding place and I was sitting there and about four o'clock in the afternoon the forward air controller, well, um, getting back to the the whole start of this whole thing going to the river. I thought the air, I thought the forward air controller was high on cocaine or something, because his uh, message to me was we're going to play eighteen holes of golf. We're taking you to the Swanee. You're going to make like, make like Esther Williams. And it took me a little little time to figure it out. Well, I finally got to, figured it out. I got to the river, and about 4 o'clock he called me, and he says, Esther Williams, now. And all he's going to do, he wants to get me on the other side of the river. And, then, and uh, I says, why? And he says, it's getting awful hot where you are. So I got across the river finally, and uh, geez, 20 minutes after the river, probably 20, at least 20 of these little guys walked right up to where I'd been hiding with flashlights, and they beat the bushes, and they finally turned around, and they never did come across the river, turned around and left. But uh, let's see, uh, I think it was the first day after I was across the river, uh, Andy Anderson who was in charge of the whole of the uh, SEAL team, called me and he says that uh, your, um, he said, your buddy is back in the clubhouse. So they had picked him up the night before that I didn't know about until I had gotten across the river. And he says, we'll have you there in, uh, well, they picked, they picked Mark up I think either one or two, one or two days. I guess one day ahead of me. And he says we'll have you in the clubhouse in a few hours. But that's the first time I know I had known that they had picked Mark up. But they did the same thing with him. They did with me. Now what 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 system they used? I don't know. But they walked him to the river. In fact, <clears throat> when uh, when. Uh, um, Tom Norris, the SEAL team, when he picked me up, he told me that they had, they had picked, uh, they had picked Tom up within 50 feet of where they picked me up. Shortly after I got across the river and he says, now keep your feet wet, which means stay in the river and move. And he says, don't be surprised at anything you see coming down the river. So I kept watching and, and the third, uh, the third night, I looked around, and it was just, just about daylight, 4 o'clock in the morning, just, just becoming daylight. I looked around, and I saw this little sampan. And see, now, I was in right close to the bank, in the, the trees overhanging, so I was in, in 
Well, this little sampan was the same, doing the same thing. But he stuck his nose out, and the first thing I saw was that Vietnamese sitting in the front. And he's got a rifle, which I think is an AK-47, and I thought, well, hell, they found me now. And I was, they kept paddling, and <clears throat> all I could think of was, well, here I is, boys, take me to your leader, you know. And about that time, uh, the whole sampan came out, and I saw the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And believe it or not, he looks pretty much like yourself. But I saw those two great big blue round eyes and that, uh, and I thought, oh my God, Tom Norris. And uh, so they kept paddling down and, and they got right beside me. And I didn't say a word, nor had they said a word. I just sat there and flapped the water and that thing stopped. And I heard Tom says, red. I says, white. He says, colonel. I says, roger. He says, get your butt in here and let's get the hell out of here. So they come over, picked, threw, me in the, um, threw me in the back of the sandpan and covered me up with banana leaves. And down, down the river we go. Now, it was not a very short trip. It took us, oh, I'd say six hours to go about a mile and a half, maybe two miles. But uh, we had a little problem. We had a few problems going down there. But. Here's our old buddies again, the forward air controllers. The first time we, we uh, Kiet sitting up there in the front, he says, stop. Why? He says, look, and the riverbanks, you know, are very steep. He says, look. So we looked up and what ha what is it? There's about 20 of those, 15 or 20 of these little guys sitting up there waiting for us. And Tom says, uh, well, it was real peculiar, too, because uh, when uh, when they picked me up, Tom's radio was dead. I mean, it had been hit with something. But I have, I've got two radios. So I just unzipped my packet, and I threw one, one to Tom, and I said, here, try this one. Called the forward air controller, and we told him what he needed, and he says, well, just hang on. We'll be there in a couple of minutes. <laughs> and sure enough, in a couple of minutes, here come two F-4s, and... Kiet says, well, okay, we go now. Went down about a, oh, another, I guess, hour or something like that. Stop. Here's two tanks. And they called forward air controller. He says, just hang on. We'll we'll be right there. Well, I don't know whether it was two or three F-4s come in that time. And Kiet says, okay, we go now. And away we go. But that, again, boy, that forward air controller, he was, uh, well, he's, he's your eye in the sky, boy. He's, he's sitting up there looking out after you. To get everything done that you want done. Uh, we got down to this, what I said, this, uh, um, they put me in this cement blockhouse waiting for the chopper, the medic chopper, to come in and pick me up. And uh, we got, the, got out of the sandpan, and they were... Uh, yeah, there was bullets all around us, and I'm so weak by then. I I can't I can't run up. The, and there was a little Vietnamese, and I'll bet you he wasn't over five foot two, probably weigh 110 pounds. Reached down, took a hold of my leg and my arm, threw me up in the air, caught me on his shoulders, and ran up that cotton picking hill with me. Got got me in the um. um blockhouse and they're taking my boots off and starting to rub uh, massage my feet 
And I'm looking around, and, and I thought, what in the world is going on? And I asked him, I says, Tom, what have you got me into? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, just look around you. Here's one guy with, a, with the VN hat on. Another one what says Laos. Another one says Cambodia. And I says, Tom, what in the hell is going on? And he says, Colonel, don't you worry about it. They're getting paid more than you are. And they, these guys were, are, well, they're, what do you call them? Uh, they've left their country and they're, they're working for our government. To this day, Gene Hamilton is grateful to the forward air controllers. Hamilton's remarkable rescue became the basis for the feature motion picture entitled Bat 21. Coming up on 5-Minute News. I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Thank God, here I am. I'm going home. I'm going to see my wife. I'm going to be able to finish my career. Thank you, all of you guys that helped get me out of here. And I've been all over the country making speeches, and that's one thing I make sure of. I don't care whether they're Marines, Navy, whatever they are. And not, I say thank you guys. I'm not talking about you personally. I'm talking about the units, and I'm, I make it a point to, to stress that because, uh, well, you don't know how thankful I am that those guys are up there doing the job that they're trained to do just exactly like they were trained to do it. Well, this is really the first time that I have ever been in. in uh, I, was, I flew 43 missions in the Korean War, but we didn't have forward air controllers that I knew of. But in a place like that, when you knew, <clears throat> and we go to, well, for a mission briefing, you know, they, they tell us forward air controllers will be such and such a place. And uh, when you knew there was somebody up there, which is your eye in the sky, knowing and seeing what's going on on the ground and relaying it to you when you're down there on the ground, it's a pretty damn comforting feeling, I'll tell you comfortable feeling to know if something comes up you're going to know about it and you're going to know about it quick and give you time to do something about it but he's there uh, um, well as far as I'm concerned they're they uh, um, for a flying personnel they were just as important as anybody in the whole cotton picking war they saved a lot of lives believe me they did let me just even reverse that a little. I mean, had it not been for the, the facts, what would have... Been? Oh, I have no idea. I, I'm, uh, if, if it hadn't been for the facts, I know I wouldn't be here. Because uh, um, first of all, the way things were going and as many people as they had, I, doesn't, I wouldn't have known which way to go. Because I was in, uh, in a pretty... Uh, um, it wasn't forest, but it was... Uh, uh, um, 
It wasn't flat like Arizona is what I'm trying to say. And you can't see very far, and you, you had no idea because those guys kept their selves hid pretty well. And, and I, had no, I would have no way, no, no way of knowing which way to go to keep, to keep out of the way of a, of a threat or, I mean, it just, uh, uh, I wouldn't have made it. it would, I don't think there'd have been any, any way in the world. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. The stories told herein were supplied by The Honor Project. Produced by David Benson. Content written and produced by Dave Barsky. Engineered by Greg Bartheld and Brian Donovan. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.